Welcome to another episode of the Bears Big Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Robin. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Han Red. Welcome to the podcast, Han. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, excited to have this conversation. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Comox, Homoko, Klehus, and Klaaman First Nations. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Han, why don't you tell us uh, a little a little bit about yourself, uh, a bit of your kind of origin story. I wouldn't mind also hearing a little bit. I know um, we're not going to really be talking about, uh, uh, you know, behavior analysis a lot on this podcast, but uh, I, I didn't realize until you and I chatted for a while that you actually had some of your starts there. So I would, I'd love to hear a bit about kind of how you started in ABA and, and why you left and then kind of what sure, that led yeah. you to do what you're doing now. Yeah. So I am in Austin, Texas in the States, also known as unceded Tonkawa Jumano's land. And I have a private practice here where I mostly work with overthinking, overachievers, children of immigrants, um, and Asian Americans on racial identity formation, racial trauma, anxiety, perfectionism. Um, And my practice is explicitly anti-racist and anti-oppressive and culturally humble in um, everything that we do and the systems and processes that we operate under with um, within the practice itself, but also with our clients. Um, and I did get my start in ABA as a freshman in undergrad. Um, I was 17 years old, wow. brand new to college, uh, looking for a job and um, found a position as an in-home behavior therapist. So got really you know, trained up in um, everything that was hot at the time. This was early 2000s when ABA was really hitting its heyday. So mm-hmm. a lot of the Lovas table time, Greenspan, Denver model, Gutstein, verbal behavior, all that good stuff. And I did that for my job. Um, all through my undergrad years where I was um, an in-home behavior therapist, but I also worked in a hospital clinic. So I got to really work with a whole range of children and behaviors, um, all all kids with autism. Um, and then after I graduated, I uh, joined Teach for America and um, was a pre-K special ed teacher. So really continued to apply my ABA roots in a classroom setting. Um, and, you know, along the ways there was, there was just some things that kind of were really difficult for me to swallow. Just the, the, um, you know, hand over hand prompting, the extinction bursts, the, um, lack of acknowledgement within the, the, you know, behavior analysis, like world at the time of other things that may influence behavior besides, you know, antecedents and environment. Um, And so it it felt really reductionistic to me. And I I got to see um, more of that when I was in the classroom, when I would try to apply these different um, frameworks um, to the children's entire schedule throughout the day. It's one thing when you're sitting down with a kid at a table for an hour or two and, and really getting your ABA session in, but it's another when you're trying to really make this work for the whole instructional day. Um, and so that's why I kind of, you know, strayed from, from behavior roots and started incorporating other models and decided to go back Mm. to grad school and learn even more about what makes people do the things that they do and how can we practice healing, um, through a broader lens. And I think 
the field has, you know, just continued to evolve since then when it comes to kind of divesting from some of the real um, strict roots of behavior analysis. Yeah, although we we definitely have 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 a long long way to go. So how, how did your training kind of continue then? Yeah, so I I got my doctorate in school psychology, um, and my my uh, program was a joint school psychology and child clinical program. So most of my practicum experiences were in. Um, clinical settings, like like acute psychiatric hospital, did a lot of work in um, juvenile services. Um, And so I got to really experience more of what it's like to work with kids and families that um, is not just bound by the school day. I did do my internship within a school system and found that to be pretty difficult to really adopt my values to Mm. the you know, restrictions of the system that I was in. And so I really wanted to um, just have more autonomy. And that's why I started a private practice afterwards. But that experience also made me realize I can only truly practice good work in places where I am familiar and aligned with the dominant culture. Um, Because I was really not aligned with the dominant culture in my internship. Um, space and uh, also experienced a lot of pretty um, consistent racism and um, digs at me because of you know who I am. So all of that really informed my um, current frameworks and my attachment and commitment to liberation psychology. Yeah, I want to get into that in a second. The, mm. the school psych piece, I, I, I hear you um, about sort of all those issues. I've had a few school psychs on now, and mm-hmm. it seems to, and, and generally they've been pe- mostly people from sort of more, more of the kind of global majority backgrounds. And, uh, and it seems that they're all working on trying to change the systems there and the structures there because the school systems and, you know, most of the systems we have sort of in the Western world, but are really not, uh, you know, conducive to, uh, you know, uh, the, diversity and 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 sort of all those things and so they, a lot of these folks find that they're so they have issues in, with recruitment and retention they have issues getting folks to take the school programs in the first place they have issues you know keeping folks in the workplace because they often come to the workplace and end up sort of being expected to then do all of the you know anti-racism work on their own even though all of the racism is directed towards them uh, because they're often the only person of color in that setting and so uh, uh, I love having these folks on because they're really passionate about you know doing that sort of decolonizing um, uh, type of work but yeah I, I it, it definitely takes the right kind of person. Yeah, and it takes such a toll on the individual. And um, I, I think, you know, one of my favorite things about being in liberation spaces is the emphasis on rest and joy and pleasure and celebration, because it's not an option. It's a necessity if we're going to sustain ourselves mm-hmm. and continue to take care of ourselves so we can, you know, do this work from the inside and not burn out. Yeah, yeah. So let's I've I've had one guest on so far, Dr. Evan August, who was talking about kind of black liberation psychology. But uh, to be honest, he was he was just full of so much wisdom that I, I spent a good chunk of the interview just being in awe of his brilliance um, and and maybe didn't sort of uh, assimilate some of the concepts as well. Uh, so I was wondering, 
I've, I've, what what is liberation psychology? Can you tell me a little bit about what that even means? Yeah, so liberation psychology is psychology for the oppressed by the oppressed. So mm. it really challenges the traditional Western-based views by giving um, a voice to the the origins of of healing and it's it's emancipatory it is an empowering approach and the principles really you know goes beyond just like the individual biopsychosocial model of what makes a person struggle um with their psychological issues or the mental health it mm. really links the personal with the political with the macro and the environment. So it really takes into context these systems of oppression that we're all under. And we are also really working to you know, co-create and um, deconstruct the hierarchy within the therapy room. So, you know, as a therapist, we tend to have more power, but in a liberation model, we think of ourselves as collaborators and there's more use of you know self-disclosure and um, more acknowledgement of the mutual humanity that we are both living under and trying to survive and fight against. Um, so it is inherently a very political way of practicing. Um, but I think given where the world is and given how these systems of oppression are affecting everybody and you can literally see it um it's becoming more and more necessary to unpack and dismantle some of the roots of psychology that just does not serve everybody especially not people with marginalized identities so so i mean when, when i had dr august on he was talking a lot about um uh, an article he did with uh couple other folks on sort of the, the history of anti-blackness and racism in psychology going back like 50 years and and uh you know going all the way back to sort of you know even the idea of the founding fathers you know and of, of, of sort of a lot of these fields are generally all kind of you know white presenting cis men um but also um you know everything from experimentation, you know, on marginalized groups to exclusion of marginalized groups in in research studies. I know one example that that he brought up a few times was sort of the idea of they did all the research on finding out the problems on 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 marginalized folks, but then did all the research on solving the problems on white folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's only only white folks get the privilege and the access to solutions like that. So is, is black liberation or sorry, is liberation psychology then like its own field? Like how like how does like how how is it kind of practiced? How does it sort of fall into in, in, into your world, or is it just or is it a philosophy? Like how do how do we use it? I think of it as like a theoretical framework. It was founded in the you know early eighties. Really has its roots in Latin America um, mm. because of all of the you know civil wars and the just the necessity of um you know empowering the oppressed um in that time and space um so the founder of it is ignacio martin barrow and um mm. it's around all the time like paulo freire's work and and so it's it's been around for a while but i think in you know North American Eurocentric views. It's not a framework that has really been given as much that much consideration until maybe in the past 
Um, I mean, I really noticed it in, you know, in the US after Trump was elected, when like all of the more covert sentiments came out of the woodworks, and it was just very overt. And, you know, people of the global majority were feeling the um, lack of safety, just by existing. And then um, finding that, okay, maybe it's not helpful to me to challenge your cognitive distortions and CBT might feel a little gaslighting to say, is it all in your head and how what evidence mm. do you have that, you know, people are um, enacting racism against you, right? Like, so um, it, it was really a, a practice that I was utilizing before I even knew there was like a word to it. But when I started my practice and noticed like, oh my gosh, we have to really expand on um, our healing models to talk about these um, political structures that are happening, that are influencing day-to-day life, these current events, all of that. Um, and not just influencing my client's life, but my own life as, as a marginalized person. Um, and so being able to really expand on that in the past decade or so, I'm seeing so much more just discourse around it and more acknowledgement um, of the need to practice from this framework. Um, in other ways, I think of it as, as a lens, right? This is not a replacement for interventions or other theoretical orientations, but it mm. is a lens through which you apply your existing Eurocentric healing frameworks. Right. And so is, is there, I mean, it's been around since the 80s now, is there some training now sort of that, you know, I mean, I, I know there's work that you're doing and, and, and others are doing to sort of you know, help folks that have already been trained kind of decolonize and and, yeah. and kind of reshift. But is is there training for like students and whatnot in sort of this area now? Or yeah, I mean, there are a few um, doctoral programs in the states that really focus on community liberation and eco psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the current APA president, Dr. Thema Bryant, is a liberation right. psychologist, black woman. Um, there's been several textbooks that have been out. You know, like that have been scholarly texts on liberation psychology, um, you know, and then just like the the canon works um, of, of, you know, the early thought leaders that we've been able to build on. You know, it's very much rooted in black and brown liberation works and like queer feminist works um, that we have been able to apply a lot of these early theories to psychological practice and intervention. So there's definitely a shift in ties and I, and I'm getting, you know, um, universities that reach out to me to do more speaking and then people send me syllabi that they're teaching on liberation psychology or mm. decolonizing mental health which is super exciting because that's not at all what I was trained in and you know mm. that's not something we even heard of when I was going through grad school um, but I think it, it takes a long time to turn a huge ship you know um, there's still despite the content that is being taught a lot of these programs are housed in predominantly white institutions where the systems, practices, policies, processes are still going to be very uh, traditional and adhere and uphold existing systems of power. And um, I think that's really where the challenge comes from, because these are the places that are accredited and they're able to, you know, provide the education because of their existing infrastructure. And yet, Um, you know, so much of this requires a radical, like dismantling of how things are taught. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you talk about, um, 
and I don't know if this is related, but collective liberation. Mm -hmm. so what's that mean and kind of related to the liberation psychology and so on? Yeah, so it's the idea that um, you can't fight for one cause, like one marginalized cause without mm. fighting for all the other marginalized causes. Mm. So like, you know, a lot of a lot of people or a lot of women are very feminist and they're very pro-feminist, but then they're like, okay, but not, not not trans people, right? They get very turfy or swerfy. You know, there's there's always exceptions to the um, you know, the liberation or the the radical um types of like who they're fighting for. Sure. And um and the idea of collective liberation is that rising tides raises all ships you can't say like okay we want to promote mm. black liberation but not asian liberation or vice versa and so much of our existing um you know liberation anti-oppressive frameworks tend to focus on one domain and sure you know we all have mm. specialties in some areas um and not others but it can't be considered like a zero sum game, like help my people, but your people have to continue to suffer because that mm. is a ploy of white supremacy. Um, as Audrey Lord said, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. So we have to really consider and reimagine ways to do this that um, are empowering to everybody. Um, one group is not going to thrive at the expense of another. That is not actually going to be sustainable and it's not true liberation. Hmm. And it sounds awesome. Um, I, I know something I hear a lot arguing, I'm, I'm, I'm vegan and so I'm often in these kind of animal rights circles and protest circles and and often something i've something i've learned is is uh recently is that you 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 there are vegans across 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 the board from mm -hmm. from far left to far right far right as much as we believe they're all uh uh you know dreadlocked hippies um <laughs> their opinions are very interesting uh um and one one message I, I constantly hear from sort of the the animal rights protest group is is that you shouldn't be talking about race, you shouldn't be talking about the other things. We should just be pro protesting for animal rights. Very, very kind of one kind of singular thing. At the same time, that else we also hear, and I know I I know one hundred percent this is not what you're talking about, but I could totally see someone comparing what you're saying to sort of the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter conversation, you know, and someone going well. You, so that you're saying what I'm saying, Han, <laughs> you know, that all lives matter. Um, and, and and so how do you kind of, um, how do you kind of navigate that? Because I, I get what you're saying that we, we definitely want to, we, we can't just be like, you know, against anti-Black racism, but pro-Asian hate, you know, that this doesn't make any right. sense. Um, mm -hmm. um, but how does, how does one navigate that so they don't have to become, you know, sort of a, a, a protester slash social justice uh, champion for everything everywhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all have our lanes, and we get really good at our lanes. And we, if we stay in our lanes, that is still, you know, contributing to the collective good and the collective shift in tides. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, acknowledging and becoming co-conspirators and collaborators with people who in, in their respective lanes is part of this coalition building, this mm -hmm. reimagining of systems, this community building. And when you're thinking about, you know, who is included in this, you don't want to include people who already have power or like beings, right? Like when you're talking about the animal rights people, it's not like, well, you know what, human beings are also animals. So mm -hmm. You know, like, can we can we focus on? I mean, I don't think cannibalism is a huge. Yeah. Issue. It comes up. 
<laughs> sure it comes out. Um, but it's it's you know I I can see like in that cause like okay maybe you know when we're focused on animals because they're the ones who are stripped of power right mm. but um you know when you say like Black Lives Matter it's because Black people are the ones who are most oppressed and marginalized you mm-hmm. don't need to say you know white lives matter because mm-hmm. there's not a problem with mm-hmm. indiscriminate white death by the hands of um people in power exactly. so yeah so you really have to do a power and structural analysis when it comes to these issues and you know part of saying okay collective liberation is really also taking into account the marginalized intersectional identities that people hold people rarely just hold one feature and the more mm. you know intersectionalities that a person identities are you know are are in the more likely they would want to fight for collective liberation because it affects so many different aspects of mm. life and self versus people who you know are like white women like okay i get why white feminism is really important to them because that is the only area that of oppression that they really really experience viscerally and personally mm. um and yet, if that's the only cause that they're championing for, then it really is not feminist at all because you're ignoring, you know, all the women of different mm. um, different origins. Yeah, yeah. Well, that reminded me of a, a, a reel I saw you do mm. where you were comparing, um, I loved it, around um, the sort of the gun lobby argument around mental illness being the cause of sort of you know all all these problems but yet those same folks don't fund any mental health initiatives exactly exactly yeah it's like okay so which is it right like if it's not guns it's mental health okay then what are we going to do to support mental health Mm -hmm. and do that in a ways that that's preventative and proactive and not you know, reactive and waiting for people to fail or die. Um, And if you think about mental health justice in that way, it's not like psychotherapy, it's housing and healthcare and Mm. universal basic income and all these elements that allow people to live so they have the luxury of even considering something like mental health. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, go back to the, your definition about how liberation psychology is by the oppressed for the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So where do sort of the the co-conspirators, co-collaborators kind of fit in there? Like, I, 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 I obviously, I, based on that definition, I can't practice liberation psychology. Oh, so, but you absolutely can. Okay. Yeah, because just because the model was founded by by that framework, Mm. it doesn't mean that, you know, other people can't join and amplify. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is liberation. Right. Mm. It just means maybe you don't get to lead. You don't get to like create new, you know, theory in this field because right. it's not something you have lived experience around. Like liberation psychology very much honors and centers lived experience alongside professional experience. Mm. Whereas 
more Western Eurocentric model center professional experience and tells people, well, don't even share your lived experience. It might make you seem less professional. Um, and so, you know, it just means that you amplify existing voices. You support people who are doing this work from an activist lived experience perspective and you, and you help them do what they you know, say needs to be done next. You take your charges and let them take the lead rather than trying to spearhead something that you um, are in theory behind but don't have personal experience with. So liberation psychology should really just be the way we all approach psychology. I mean, I think so, but it's, um, you know, not not everyone is comfortable with that. And I get it because it's mm. really, really hard to unlearn all that we know about what professionalism requires and what, you know, blank slate psychotherapists should be. And yes. a lot of it is challenging those existing notions of, you know, what it means to be a therapist. Yeah. I want to talk just going back to a bit of about your history again because we talk you talk a lot on on your on your Instagram about how your own sort of experiences and intersectionalities and identities really really kind of guide your practice and 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 why those kinds of areas like I know you talked about um how you do things around sort of overachievers and perfectionists mm-hmm. and then you've you've talked about how you that 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 maybe still is, but used to be a way you often were. And so that's kind of, kind of, kind of why you do that kind of work. And once you talk about working with aging immigrants, and obviously mm-hmm. there's some history there. So I'm, I'm just curious about sort of what, of whatever you're sort of comfortable to share about your yeah. own history that kind of guided the work you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, we, we hear about this in, in academia, right? Like when research becomes me search. Hmm. And, um, and I think this is absolutely true for therapists as well. Like when you think about why people are drawn to this field, you know, a lot of us like want to help others. But if people are truly honest, a lot of times it's also because we're trying to help ourselves, help mm. our families. We've mm. experienced personal um, you know, difficulties related to mental health because of maybe what we couldn't access or what our loved ones couldn't access. And so there's something that really um, is you know, compelling about wanting to heal others um, and or heal yourself through healing others. And I think that is absolutely a, you know, foundational place from which I practice. Um, I do the best work with people that I can relate to more personally, whose experiences I have um, been able to bear witness to in my, in my life, in, mm. in my, um, my personal and my professional lives. So a lot of, um, how I practice is informed by that and it, it keeps growing, you know, it's, it really started off as just like, okay, Asian American identity and being a woman, right. This is what you can see. Mm-hmm. And then from mm-hmm. there, it was a lot of like, okay, went through 27 years of school. So bit of an overachiever here, um, probably a little neurotic and anxiety, anxious and you know, perfectionistic as well. Like, how do I help other people who are experiencing and living that? And then, mm. you know, more recently, it's extended to ways that I identify in my, you know, my sexual orientation as well. Like I identify mm. as a woman, I am non-monogamous. Like these mm. are elements that I um, have felt a lot of shame around for most mm. of my life and tried to mm. really mask and hide and realizing, you know, 
these are elements that a lot of therapists are dealing with, a lot of people mm. are dealing with, and it doesn't help anyone to pretend that they're not part of who I am. You know, it's that that old saying, you know, what you resist persists. Yeah. You uh you had, you came out on Instagram a while mm-hmm. back, which is yeah. awesome. Good for you. That's amazing. Um and and uh I'm wondering how did that sort of did, did that change your practice? Did you now start getting more kind of clients that were kind of identifying there or were you already and you and you were sort of, you know, maybe came out in, in confidence in, in some of those sessions. How did that kind of change your practice um, when, when you came Um, out? I'm not accepting new clients. So I haven't hmm. really seen a shift in my right. referrals, although I'm quite positive based on just how I've witnessed in my personal community of how difficult it really is to find mm. queer polyamory affirming therapists. Yeah. There's just a lot of um, mononormativity and compulsory monogamy and, you know, heteronormativity in, mm. in our society that um, people aren't even aware of needing to dismantle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I haven't, you know, been able to see firsthand how that would affect my referral streams. But I will say that um, a, a big motivator to um, sharing that was just the conflict I felt around having the social location and positionality of privilege of being in a you know straight presenting marriage that mm. you know, by all intents and purposes, you know, like two people with a mortgage and two children yep. seems very monogamous, like all of these elements that um that allowed me to have the protection and safety and access of that privilege. Although I myself and my identities did not identify in that way. And that Mm. creates a lot of dissonance. And as an anti-oppressive educator, I do feel like it's really important to be, um, you know, acknowledging of all the different facets of my own identity. Certainly Mm -hmm. can't speak to um, being a champion for other people's struggles that I don't have lived experience around. But why is it so important for me to, you know, promote equity around racial justice just because people can see it, but then not around other um, marginalized parts of who I am? Yeah. Do you want to ask a couple of questions about polyamory? Just because I know know nothing about it. So it, um, it, um, because I, I won't lie. I mean, I immediately had some of those biases and judgments right away too. I mean, you've talked about your husband a lot, um, um, and he sounds super awesome, and and your kids sound great, and your dogs sound awesome. And, but it, it certainly just sounds like you know, you know, my my colonialist biased perception of what a family should look like. Um, um, you know, I would you know add more bias I, I i already have assumptions on what i think your husband should look like too right mm-hmm. you sure. know based yeah. on some of that uh and so i'm sure it sounds like you've had a, a, a lot of great support since you've come out which has been awesome but you know I'm, I'm, it sounds like there's been a lot of nasty stuff too and 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 imagine some of that's related to to you know your actually your situation because it's it's really it would be really easy for my very skewed I'm going to start asking some questions in a second from my very skewed perspective of, uh, uh, of polyamory, um, primarily 
because in, in, in particular because I live in British Columbia and so we hear a lot about polygamy here mm-hmm. um, which which you know the, the words are even similar and right, so it's easy right, it's easy in my yeah, so it's easy yeah. in my brain to connect those together uh-huh, and uh-huh. um and, and, and suddenly get you know super judgmental um and right. and, and it, which is interesting that you pointed out in, in, in that in, in one of your posts that it's folks like me that seem to be most bothered by this concept, uh, white white men. Um, and so, uh, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what what that even means, because I think yeah. it, it 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 doesn't mean what I think it means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, polyamory just means multiple loves. It is the mm. um, you know mutual consensual decision to be able to explore multiple romantic relationships that's it and how it looks the logistics the relationship agreements and guidelines all of that are so diverse and varied depending Mm. on the people who are involved in it and there's Mm. a whole spectrum of what that looks like and um it it's there's no one prescriptive thing that that it is sometimes it's only sex sometimes there's no sex sometimes it's romance sometimes not romance sometimes it's just doing life together you know there's on one extreme relationship anarchy where every single relationship romantic um platonic family or whatever is considered equally as important and you're Mm. not you know privileging one relationship over the other by by its inherent structure Mm. Um, so there's just such a diversity and range of what it looks like to practice this and what it means to people and what draws people to this and and why people live like this and is it a is there a sort of a a cultural kind of history there too because I, I sort of imagine that again my western colonized brain wants to frame it in a certain way because this is the way I I've been taught to believe relationships should go. Like, are there cultures where uh, polyamory is just is happens all the time and it's just sort of a normal thing, um, or is it across different cultures? Like, how's that how's that play? Yeah, and you know, when you think about modern times, like mm. everything is kind of influenced by colonialism. Yeah. Christianity, um, you know, imperialism. So it's like really hard to like say that for modern times. Like historically, Mm. we have had a lot of um, more collectivist community building, matriarchal communities and societies. But in in modern day, it's really hard to um, tease out the patriarchy from it, which is Mm. probably, you know, part of what, you know, this this where this bias comes from because so much of this historically has been rooted in like a man wanting to control multiple women taking on multiple wives but they mm. don't have agency to do the same and um it is like a radical form of patriarchy and control mm. um and that is not at all the the theory or um ideology behind you know more modern ways of practicing polyamory mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. about um consensual intentional relationship agreements whatever mm-hmm. that may be and you know at the end of the day like polyamory and intentional monogamy are very similar like you and i both want the same things and this is how we want it and mm-hmm. we talk about it and we agree to um uphold these these relationship agreements that we arrived at together and if things changed we'll discuss it and 
you know, whether you're monogamous or not, that's ideally how all relationships should should be built upon. Mm-hmm. And of course, it could also, and obviously it could mean anything, but it, I think the term poly also makes you sort of assume hundreds of people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or whatever, or, or like, or like all the time, every everyone, I, everyone I've met, I'm in love with, or whatever. Right, right, right. And, yeah. And those yeah. are things. And poly can just be two people, you know. Right. Um, or you could be, you know polyamorous in like your identity right like mm. it's something that's more of a, a political stance or I a personal stance. like i want the option like this is something right. that i always want to have the option or i sometimes want the option to like right now um life is happening and we are choosing to not do that right it doesn't have to be you know something that is constantly practiced in order yeah. to be part of who you are yeah, so yeah. you know there's there's really just different facets to it because it doesn't have to be something you're constantly actively doing right to identify with yeah and i and i like the the idea of, of just having an option i had a great conversation a while back with someone on on kind of gender fluidity and the and sort of the as as a construct and the and gender as a construct in the idea that you know you should just be able to move back and forth in any kind of direction you want at any time because it, you know just mm-hmm. I, I might just today just feel like painting my nails um mm-hmm. and and it's not because i'm you know less or more of of me or anything else it's just i just want to paint my nails you know and uh oh. and, and and that's just a thing you know or i just want to you know do this or do that um and 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 but but because they don't fit into sort of our western constructs of male female and so on and so forth therefore i'm doing something wrong wherein wherein i'm just doing what what makes me feel good and that's kind of what yeah. you're saying yeah yeah, it's it's breaking out of binaries and yeah. um, dualities with communication and intentionality. Because you asked about polyamory, and and I will I will pivot that to say non-monogamy, right? Mm. Non-monogamy is pervasive around the world. Mm. Everybody's doing it, not everybody, but every single culture has lots of people doing it. It's right. just non-consensual. It's just mm. underground, right? And, you know, somehow like that seems to be more acceptable in like just um, and you just don't talk about it. You turn right. a blind eye to it in some cultures like, well, that's just how men are. Right. And and that's like, why? Why is that OK? And why is that normalized mm. and not the intentional communicated choice and um, conversation around it? So that's the difference. of so non-monogamy is basically cheating. And I mean, it's for just multiple partners, multiple in, partners, in whatever, in whatever way, right? It can oh, be, well, you know, it can be physical, it can be sexual, it can be whatever ways. Just yeah. you know, being involved in multiple with multiple people in um, ways that you and whomever you're with decide is more mm. intimate than what um, you would typically do, right? And it can be consensual and ethical and you know above board, or it could be non-consensual. Cheating, and so where does and so going back to, and obviously not the same. What's sort of the difference then between polyamory and polygamy for those that are mm-hmm. hearing the two words and going, yeah. they really sound the same. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 
So non-monogamy and polyamory are, you know, uh, non-monogamy is the bigger umbrella and polyamory mm. is one facet of it where people yeah. want relationships. It's yes. not just sex or not just one element. It's like everything that comes along with relationships. And then polyamory and polygamy. Polygamy is the practice of marrying multiple people. And mm. the places where that is allowed tend to be more patriarchal. And, um, you know, it's only allowed in one way, right? Like, Yep. or um sister wives or, or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there there is more of a flavor of non-consent by some people involved or not like you know maybe not completely informed consent um but certainly not equal power there's definitely more power over in how these uh partnerships are are constructed so anytime saying like well i'm allowed to do this but you're not then you're you're not that's not polyamory hey gotcha yeah which is different than like i'm allowed to do this you're allowed to do this but maybe you don't want to do this and you say like okay cool you do that but i choose to just be in this because i don't want to have all of these other things um that's different that's still consensual that's still mm. the option for it to um be practiced if you know people want got it Okay, no, good. I'm glad to clear that up because I mean, it's probably it's probably a question you're answering a lot now that, that you've you've talked about it. Yeah, I I think you know it's interesting because part of my um, comfort level in sharing this is also shaped by kind of the cultural zeitgeist around this. Mm. Like it's something that I've been seeing a lot more in my practice. I've been seeing a lot more on social media. Just like you know, especially after people were quarantined with like one person and they're like, oh my gosh, like. Um, this is this is a whole lot like people more and more people are opening up or just considering this as a possibility when they approach um, romantic relationships in general. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. I also see in your bio um, uh, some 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 neurodivergence as well. Mm -hmm. What's what's that about? Um, there's there's a big overlap, I think, in like mm -hmm. the uh, non-monogamy and the neurodivergence community because mm -hmm. kind of like you know, outside the, outside the box thinkers. Right. Um, yes. so I, I grew up with, um, a lot of attachment disruptions and have you know, a complex trauma history. Mm. And then I was also diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Mm. Um, so that definitely fuels my energy levels, the way that I look at myself and the world around me, um, and really my executive functioning as well. Yeah. Is that a recent, so that's a recent diagnosis? Um, it's not, it's, I more recently started talking about it. I was diagnosed with this, um, when I was 24, when I started mm. grad school, um, and I had a lot of, um, imposter syndrome around it of like, oh gosh, you know, maybe I fooled my psychiatrist or, you know, not wanting to, um, really believe in that diagnosis, but then also like finding like medications and, um, just routine and structure to be incredibly helpful for living my life. And it's not until I would say the past decade where there's so much more research and just conversation around how this shows up in women, how this shows up in adults and in, you know, um, Asian women, or you know, women of the global majority, especially, um, it just does not show up the same way as it does in the seven-year-old white boy. So now that I'm getting so many more examples and stories and, um, you know, community around it, it's, it's been really reaffirming um, and feel, also feel safer to be able to share my experiences mm -hmm. around living and growing up with this. 
Yeah. No, I asked, I, I, I had my ADHD diagnosis just a few years ago in, in my forties and, yeah. and, uh, yeah, certainly explains most of my life and a lot of my childhood and a lot of the issues that were kind of happening there. And so, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's been amazing. And the, the adult diagnosis has just been, been, been a wonderful change. Uh, and the medication, you know, I, I used to be so anti-medication until, um, until I tried medication for ADHD and it's uh, yeah, game changer, hundred percent. Yeah, totally. And also just the normalization, right? You don't have mm. to, you know, shame yourself. Like, why can't I do this the way that other people do it? And mm -hmm. it allows you permission to really like work with how this affects your life rather than like pushing against and trying to fit back into a box. Yeah, yeah. Curious, just while, while I have you here, um, do you have any strategies yourself for kind of um, something I've, I've, I've been noting just doing this podcast is, uh, is and I mentioned it when I talked about Dr. August coming on, and, and I forgot everything he talked about related to Black liberation psychology. Uh, and so I was looking for, forward to a bit of a re refresher with you um, about sort of how to how to retain information from sort of long conversations? Do you have any tools yourself that you use, mm. or is that an issue for you? The second secret word is model. Gosh, no, I mean it's definitely an issue for me. But I remember like the weirdest things. Like mm. I have such an uncanny memory for things that aren't really necessarily helpful. <laughs> um, Same. Yeah, I mean, I I think. Um, a lot of it's repetition. I mm. this is this is maybe more of a a, a life self soothing strategy. Yeah, I trust that if it's important, it will show back up in my life in some yeah. way, and it almost inevitably always does. Yeah. And so over time, it's like okay, here I am noticing patterns. Right, that's like an ADHD superpower. Is you notice all of these patterns in these different. Right ways and spaces. And then I'm able to pull things together more readily that way. Um, I may not be able to have like that explicit recall, but I have really good recognition. So if I hear something or like, you know, learn about something, and even if I don't like remember the details of it, when it comes up again, I'm like, ah, yes, that, and then I can like, you know, connect the dots in my head um, more readily. And mm. that helps me with the recall and the retention piece. And then also just writing down a lot of notes. I don't even read my notes. I, I never yeah. go back and read anything I write, but the just writing it down really helps me to um, consolidate information. And also just like making these, these TikToks and reels. Like it's yeah. fun, it's informative and educational, but it's also one of the big ways that I process information for myself mm. and how I consolidate and make sense of, you know, patterns and trends that I see in the world. I love that. I love that. I love the idea that it'll just, it, it'll come back to me eventually when I need it. I think for, for the most part, you're right. It kind of has done that. So I feel a little less, uh, uh, I don't know, um, uh, useless because I don't remember all the details. <laughs> yeah. Just re relieve that pressure. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not necessary unless you like have a test on it or something. No, exactly. Well, and the other side of the coin is I also know I have pressed record in all these interviews. So if I really want to know, I can go back and listen. Uh, and sure. And funny enough, I never go back and listen. There you go. <laughs> um, wondering about uh, your work, because um, there's something we talked about in, in kind of our pre-chat that I that I wanted to learn more about is just your work uh, with the Asian community. Um, so you, you do a lot of work with... Uh, Asian immigrants. Um, and uh, can you tell me a bit about what that that works about what that looks like? 
Yeah. So uh, mental health is something that's pretty stigmatized in my community. Mm. And um, if you think about what happened in the whole continent of Asia in the 20th century, like every single part was touched by some form of systemic trauma, whether it's, you know, the Cultural Revolution of China, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, mm. um, or two in Japan, and, you know, everywhere that Japan touched during that time, you know, British True. colonization in India, the Cambodian yeah. genocide, right? It's just like this whole continent was racked by systemic trauma. Mm. And so many people had had to, you know, flee, creating this Asian diaspora. And mm. they were very much focused on survival. So then they go to these different places, have children, and then they're raising them based on these kind of um, survival traumatized strategies. And then the kids are growing up not finding um, as much integration or um, confidence or happiness. Mm. So that's really my area of specialties is, is people who identify more as children of immigrants or like, you know, 1.5 generation immigrants, um, people who are third culture kids who are navigating bicultural um, integration and racial identity formation issues. Um, and mm. then, you, you know, put on top of that, the just overall um, racism that exists in the U.S., but actually everywhere in the world, and the colorism, right? There's there's definitely um, themes of that everywhere you look. Just some mm. places are better at talking about it than others. Um, so I help people kind of make sense of their identities and their values and how these different parts of themselves fit together to make them who they are. Mm. A lot of people who come and see me have... Um, you know, checked off the boxes. They've reached these goals on paper and mm. they're, you know, quote unquote successful, but they're not happy. They're not content. They don't feel fulfilled in their lives. And it's so confusing because so much of our upbringing is like, well, if you just, you know, go to college, get a good job, get married, mm. you reach these life milestones, then you will automatically be happy. And if you're spending so much time trying to live up to these external expectations and validation points, you're not really exploring what it is that you want for yourself. Hmm. And so a lot of times people don't arrive to a, a place where they're able to explore that until their young adulthood. And then that's what I help people try to unpack and navigate. Hmm. So you talk about sort of racial trauma and identity. What What is racial trauma is it just essentially exper everything experiencing racism and all the things that kind of come with that or yeah yeah i mean you know we think about it as like oh you have been like the victim of a hate crime right like that is certainly racial trauma sure. uh, and it's in an extreme form but right. a lot of this also takes the form of vicarious trauma when you're seeing in the news people who look like you be brutalized and killed mm. and harmed time over time or like even if it's not um by human factors it's more like environmental context or even like natural disasters like you know, the wildfires in Hawaii, like the mm. people, a lot of the people who are missing are native Hawaiians, Filipina, yes. you know, they're, they're immigrants they are people who work at these resorts to serve the tourists. Right. Mm. So, you know, when you're seeing the ways that society treats people who look like you and who have beginnings like you, there's either a tendency to really want to separate yourself from that. Well, I'm different mm. than 
people, um, which then, you know, perpetuates supremacy culture and you kind of buy into this more dominant narrative or you have this over identification with them. And then that can lead to a lot of survivor's guilt, imposter syndrome. Um, and, you know, depending on where people are, there's, it's it's always some form of reckoning in, you know, how do you stay engaged enough to contribute and, you know, help the cause, but also protect yourself and um, get a clear sense of who you are as informed by these experiences, but not defined by them. Mm. And would it be safe to say that a lot of folks may not be aware that they've been traumatized by this? Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of times people come in and they're just like, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. Like, those are the 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 two you know tip of the iceberg symptoms mm. that people tend to come in with. And okay, so let's do some coping and skills building, and you know talk through some of that. And you know for some people that's that's good enough. But I think when people really start digging into the roots of why and how, what do I do about it? That's where it gets um, messier and mm. deeper. And that's where, you know, elements of who you are and where you came from and where you learned these things um, absolutely do play a role. We all learned our values from somewhere. And how can systemic trauma and, you know, oppression not influence the values that we do hold? Mm-hmm. I've heard someone talk about approaching things less from a a trauma-informed lens and more from a, a trauma-assumed <laughs> lens uh, because, and, and and there's been some arguments against it, like you, not everyone's had trauma, but it does seem like, and, 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 and I don't know if there's research around it, but it does seem like everyone has had trauma. Is that? I mean, like, trauma's subjective, right? Yeah. Like it's too much, too fast, too soon. Mm. It's too alone. Like you can go through some really, really hard, um, disruptive, injected things in life, but you have a strong support system. You are able to talk about Mm. it with people in ways that are affirming and not shaming. Um, And then it doesn't get encoded as trauma. So, you know, a lot of times people experience like relatively small, you know, misattunements or things in their lives, but they felt so alone and they mm. didn't have a place to put it. And then that shame over time becomes toxic. And then that does become encoded as trauma and informs how they approach future um, similar events. And mm. it really is such a subjective experience that you can't really say one way or the other that like everyone has or hasn't right. I think a lot of people have I think if you think about trauma as more of the subjective too much too soon you know too fast too alone perspective then it does encompass a lot more than what we you know typically assume about trauma as in capital T trauma mm. well and I think and then there's also an assumption that and maybe this is inflicted, self-inflicted, that I shouldn't deal with, try to deal with my trauma unless I've got like a disorder, like I've got PTSD or something. Yeah. I mean, and that's the the, the narrow um, limitations of, you know, modern categorization systems, mm. right? That's the drawbacks of the DSM that you have to like check these boxes in order to receive help. Um, maybe, and I would say like, 
probably even most people who have experienced some form of trauma don't live with a trauma disorder in that sense. You know, it's not super disruptive to their day-to-day lives or, you know, causing um, major distress, but does it influence how they approach relationships or parenting or money or work or joy or anger, mm. right? Like, does it influence how they view themselves and others? Absolutely. And so maybe it's not so disruptive that you, you know, qualify as having a disorder, but does that warrant um, attention and care and mm time and energy so you can live with more ease? I mean, I think so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So wondering about uh, uh, this phrase, just kind of related to the the Asian piece, you talked about this idea of model minority Asians. What's that mean? What's that about? Well, the model minority myth is all the stereotypes that you hear about Asian Americans. We're good at Mm. math. We are high achievers. We make more money. We're more educated. Mm. Um, Yes. So it's it's all the like um, biases and stereotypes about being Asian um, in North America that People think like, well, that's not actually a detriment to you because it's right. a good stereotype to have. Um, but it's also a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation. It's um, also very much reductionistic of the Asian community. Mm. Um, there tends to be a lot of variance in how people in this community, you know, achieve or, you know, perform. And, you know, just like it, there is in every community, no community is a monolith. Um and so the model minority myth was really created, you know, and in the 1960s during the American Civil Rights Movement, where like Asian American was even created as a racial identity, you know, specifically to perpetuate anti-blackness. Because if we have multiple groups of minority people, and then there's some who are doing, you know, quote unquote, so much better than another, then maybe it's not the system that's broken. We don't have to address the roots in the system. It's, you know, the individuals who can't perform or achieve as well. So really model minority is designed to perpetuate anti-Blackness and say, you know, look at those people. They seem to be just fine under current uh, policy. So we don't need to do anything. It's something wrong with you. That's the problem. Mm. And do and do your clients that are maybe experiencing this, do they, do people, or just in general, do people try to live up to that? Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly. There's so much pressure, you know, mm. and it's it's something that's very much um, internalized and perpetuated by our parents' generation, too. Mm. Because they have immigrated, they have, you know, sacrificed everything to give us a better life. So we better live up to that. Mm. Um, and it's true. They, they really have sacrificed so much and they... Um, prioritize and value education so much because it feels like such a meal ticket out. But sometimes that's at the expense of social, emotional health, relational health, physical health, you know, all these other elements that make a person well-balanced and well-rounded. And so does this, is this then for you part of the reason why at one point, and maybe still now, you were identifying as an overachiever? Is that sort of part of that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a you know, growing up in a 
pretty traditional Chinese household. It was the expectation was to make straight A's and go to college and get a graduate degree, but not any graduate degree. It had to be mm. some sort of doctorate. Like I had a lot of um, high expectations that I felt a lot of pressure to live up to. Um, and so, you know, a big cost to that was sense of self and you know, being able to explore things that I actually wanted to do, or even knowing what I actually mm. wanted to do. I was in such a rush in my twenties to just like hit the next milestone, just check the next box. Um, but at a certain point I like checked all the boxes and I'm like, well, now what? I still have the majority of my life to live. And I mm. don't know what makes me happy. And I don't know yeah. how I want to live with that time. And yet there's an expectation for you to work, 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 make, make, make more money and so on and so forth. That internalized capitalism, that, you know, um, emphasis on productivity and achievement as markers of, you know, human worth and, you know, self-worth and, and value. Yeah. And you've obviously done a lot of work in this area, you know, on yourself and whatnot. One thing that you're talking about recently that you've been doing that I think is in part a response to this, which I love, is 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 being in your in your meadow area yeah. can you tell me area. about what it means to be in your meadow area i think i'm in the meadow area right now but i, I, I want to hear what what it means to you yeah you know if you think about like i don't know i think about meadows it's like frolicking right like i'm just gonna like skip and hop through a meadow and have a picnic and like yep. enjoy some brie and figs and pick some flowers and <laughs> rest and nap um <laughs> And, and so, you know, I, I wanted to really be able to focus on not over planning that that's really what it means. Just, it's like, okay, I'm not going to like try to reach these goals in my career or income or, you know, life benchmarks that I have always used to like judge myself. Mm. Um, they were goals, but they were also like excuses to self-flagellate when I mm -hmm. didn't meet them. Um, and so it's really just being more open to whatever comes my way and um, more receptive to just opportunities that arise rather than like hustling and grinding and trying to chase that down. Um, and I think what I've discovered in, in this time is like I've I've done so much growth this year, relationally, attachment wise, you know, just healing my own childhood trauma stuff. Like mm. um, all this stuff tends to be pretty invisible. And um you know, I feel it every day, but I think in the past, there would have been a lot of shame around like, well, it's a waste of time or a waste of your energy if you don't have something to show for it on, mm. you know, in, the, in terms of an accomplishment or an output and really making peace with, okay, well, this work is still work, right? This is still important in my sense of self and what makes me feel happier mm. and more fulfilled and more, you know, aligned to myself, even if it's not outwardly productive or mm -hmm. outcome and really having to make peace with that so you know in terms of that like my, my metal area has has not been uh um completely like peaceful it's it's mm -hmm. been a lot of internal growth and it's been painful and hard it's just not been um achievement oriented mm. no i love that you talked about another thing you talked about, which uh, which I, I liked, um, it was related to you went to uh, I think you went to a, a presentation that you really enjoyed and it, you know had, had a really big impact on you, um, um, and it got me thinking about um, 
this this uh, conference I went to in in June uh, called the Black Behavior Analysts Conference, um, and uh, I went there primarily to interview folks and kind of about their experiences and whatnot. And a lot of them talked about some of the stuff you're, you're I'm, I'm going to ask about. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk, you, you talked about affinity spaces and how those are really important. And I wonder if you could t- talk about what those are and, 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 you know, how folks can kind of find them. And uh, because it sounds like just, just, it sounds like this conference was, was sort of that affinity space for, for black folks in my field. Um, uh, just because of the experiences they shared about being at this conference compared to some of our big sort of flagship annual conferences were so different. Yeah. I mean, all the mainstream conferences are going to be predominantly white. That's just who is centered in our culture. And that is just what the population uh, reflects as well. So affinity spaces are just places where certain elements of your identity is centered, whether it's, you know, LGBTQIA plus or um, racial affinity spaces or any other elements of your identity that's not the dominant norm. Um, It's an ability, it's a, a a space where you can have the ability to connect with other people who um, you have assumed more in common with, you have more shared lived experiences. You don't have to explain, you know, how or why things are different for you because Mm. of your lived experiences. And it's a place where you can also be a little bit more authentic. You can, you know, speak your mind without being afraid of uh, offending fragile ears nearby. and. You know, there, there's definitely value to, you know, educating the mainstream, um, but a lot of times we're tired of that. We don't want to have to be educating mm-hmm. or like be representing in all the spaces that we occupy. And that's one of the the big pressures and burdens of, of being uh, marginalized in any space is, you know, if you're a white cis het male, like you get to have the assumption of just relatability wherever you go you you yep. you know you get to be individual you get to be that because there's a lot of white cishet males and that's that's cool so but you know when i show up it's like oh it's the asian psychologist it's you know i have to represent all these elements of the various communities that um i'm an ambassador from mm-hmm. and that strips me of my individuality in a lot of ways as well. And that can be really exhausting. And that's also one of the reasons why people really mask themselves to, you know, or contort to fit into the mainstream or they yes. hide parts of their marginalized identities that, um, you know, are more invisibilized. They don't want to choose to have to be an ambassador in even more spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that a lot from the folks I've interviewed about that pressure to represent your whole culture and and and, uh, and 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 sort of identity and and how that just well re- really ruins the day <laughs> it's just a lot of work you know yeah. it's just a lot of labor to to have to feel the weight of that everywhere you go and i mean and also just like having to be palatable to um you know people who might take your words wrong mm-hmm. thinking about you you're just that one identity as being an Asian psychologist. I know there are a lot of 
there there seems to be a lot more now you know available for for black psychologists um you know i think just because they've done a, a good job of of of, of rallying together and they've 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 they, they do conferences there's the association for their abci abci and there's you know there uh, there's recently now the the black school psychologists group had a had a conference to do those sorts of things are are there are there groups slash events and whatnot available for Asian psychologists? Yeah, absolutely. There, there is a, a, an Asian psychology division in APA. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, one for Latinx, one for indigenous folks, you know, so there's, there's definitely um, cultural groups, but then when you mm. look at the percentage breakdown, it's still just like each of these, you know, cultural groups is like maybe 4% of mm-hmm. the entire field. So there's, there's not, um, as many numbers. And I think, you know, to be Asian is there's an additional layer of just kind of a lack of solidarity in this identity. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because it's, I don't know, maybe this is a, a spicy hot take, but, no, no. you know, there's, there's like some consensus, right. In, you know, like the black community, like racism was bad. It happened and its effects are still impacting us today. Mm. But there's not that type of consensus in um, the Asian American uh, culture. Mm. There's a lot of people who very much um, pander to whiteness and they very much use their model minority identity and their white adjacency to, you know, move ahead in life and this idea of like well if i stay palatable and on the good side Mm. of those who hold power then you know i will get to enjoy some of the benefits of that power and that causes a lot of risk because those are not people who generally believe in collective liberation Mm. or you know the rising tides all ships model um and then there's more people who tend to be yeah, like, no, you don't, you're not talking about us. You're not including us when, mm-hmm. when you talk about, you know, these um, reforms or or whatever policies. Um, we are still othered when it really matters. And mm. so I think there's, you know, I mean, certainly this exists in the Black community and just, you know, all communities, this like um, spectrum of ideology and beliefs. But I think the rift is wider in the Asian community and it's mm. also wider generationally. I think most of my parents' generation, most of these, you know, first generation immigrants are very thankful to be here. And they're very like, yay, let's, you know, adopt mm. all the dominant cultural aspects. It's it's assimilation or die, right? Like it's really trying to um like pander to whiteness as a means mm. of survival. Um and then and you know, there's people who are like, no, this this doesn't quite feel right because you're erasing mm. so many elements of who I am in order mm. to make me palatable. So we just don't have that um, solidarity within our community. The-, the second secret word is model. The third secret word is affinity. The way that some of the other... Um, racialized communities do something else has just got me thinking about and and and, and you know this is gonna, I'm, I'm probably going to articulate this wrong but um is is uh with the black community and this is completely from my own kind of you know white male just learning sort of perspective but that 
generally speaking, when we talk about black folk um, in North America, um, you know, we just talk about black folks um, as black folks. Uh, we don't talk about sort of, you know, you know, unless there's, you know, unless they, they, the individuals overtly do it themselves, or there's an obvious sort of like accent or whatnot. But we don't talk about sort of Nigerian black folks. We don't talk about mm. Botswanian black folks, and so Cuban black folks, and so on and so forth. Um, whereas with Asians, we we don't we we tend to. I mean, in, in circles I'm in, we do tend to talk about, you know, folk, Japanese folks, Chinese folks, Korean folks, and so on. Does that kind of play a role in in some way in terms of the maybe the lack of solidarity or or in in the way folks are treated I, I, or or is that even a thing like why is that a thing that I that I know and that I can talk about what country you're from and I'm actually concerned with you know calling you Chinese when you may very well be Korean because there's often a oh, Korean yeah. Chinese confusion um at least in my neck of the woods with white folks um how does that kind of play into things or does it yeah I mean I I think you know it's one of the solidarity markers but also like one of the complaints that I hear from mm. my you know black colleagues is that there is um you know not as much acknowledgement of the different aspects of black identity mm. um and i think if, that's like really when you're talking about something like yeah. a racial lens versus like an ethnic lens right mm. like you know we are all racialized as this one group right. versus the, here's these ethnic identity markers mm -hmm. um and i think you know just historically with how u.s history carried out like we did not immigrate here against our will as enslaved people mm. um, in, by large population. And that is something that is, you know, an ongoing reckoning mm -hmm. um, that this country is continuing to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and that is oppressive and also uniting in some, mm -hmm. some of the ways. Um, but we don't, we don't have that. Like people came to the U S from different Asian countries, because of so many different ways, right? Like yeah, some yeah. Like the 1800s to build the railroads and some came, you know, there was like a period of like 80 years where there was no immigration from Asian countries because of policy. Mm. And then people came, you know, after the 1960s. So I think that's part of it too, is most Asian immigrants um, came to this country in the past, you know, 70 years or so versus, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, where it's like generational descent of enslaved people. Um, and so there's there's more ability to track your cultural lineage too, which is a privilege. I know a lot of Black people who feel very disenfranchised from their history and privilege because they were trafficked here. So, um, you know, all of these are kind of double-edged swords, right? There's, mm. there's just pros and cons to, to all of it because yeah. it is a connection to ancestry and lineage and, and yet it's what keeps us from maybe having as much solidarity but then on the other hand you really see this within like white communities when people give up their ethnic heritage to be white they mm. lose their you know oh my descent is irish or german or whatever they're just right. white and that is the cost of that power, privilege, and access mm. is disenfranchisement, but you know, in a more kind of like chosen way, 
from your lineage and history. And that comes with its own sense of grief and loss too. And, you know, because white people have the power, like a lot of them compensate for it by co-opting and appropriating from other cultures. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, this, <laughs> this is the no, I, 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 no, I don't, it's a rabbit hole. I, I love the, the idea that, well, I love the idea, but I've, it's interesting, the idea that as a white person, you know, I'm also affected by white supremacy culture. Oh, um, and and uh, obviously in the way of just, you know, well, maybe not obvious, but but in the way that I would, but in the way that I would actually give up some of my other culture mm-hmm. um, um, that's also still white, um, uh, you know, I mean, based, I mean, if it was Irish or whatever, you know. Uh, um, um, but it wasn't always white, right? Mm, like, white's a construct. It right, used to yes. be Irish or English or you know, ah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Cultural lineage you once had. Yes, yeah. no. So I, I'm, I, I've gone from, yeah, being, you know, the, the Irish, uh, Italian, um, you know, the German person to the white guy. And 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 mm-hmm. what that all entails, and uh, and uh, and then that creates the supremacy because there, yeah, because there wasn't white before supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, you you say you're not taking on new clients. You do a lot of work in counseling, but you obviously do a lot of work in uh, in, in in anti-oppressive care and 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 DEI and, and kind of and kind of some of these things. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of beyond your Instagram page, which uh, I think everyone, a lot of people will know you from how, kind of how you do that work and maybe how folks can, you know, access you for that kind of work? Yeah. So I do a lot of speaking. Um, hmm. I would love to do more keynotes and speaking engagements for corporate employee resource groups or, hmm. you know, different um, affinity spotlight months. Um, I would also love to do some facilitation and consultation with organizations. Um, me and another, um, psychologist that I met through TikTok, Dr. Raquel Martin, we have Mm. a new website out, which is antioppressivecare.com. Um, we developed a workshop just based on the comments that we were getting from our followers were therapists about just like the lack of true, like anti-oppressive, um, education they got in grad school. And so we have made that available to download. And we also offer, um, ongoing consultation groups for people who want to just talk more about real life applications. Um, also a great place to be able to book both of us to do a speaking engagement if um, you're interested. And um, I'm also just facilitating other you know, virtual spaces and affinity groups. I have one coming up this fall with um, uh, a DEI facilitator, former educator named Joe Truss, um, who I mm. met at the that BIPOC Educators Conference, um, where we're holding a um, uh, a BIPOC affinity space for reclaiming our collective strength. So that's going to be ongoing for this next year. Um, and I'm always just kind of dreaming and developing new content and workshops that um, I will hopefully be able to um, roll out in the next year, but sometimes people just want me to come and do content for their um, their platform or their organization. I love doing that too. I think it's really fun to to film content. Um, I partnered with Headspace mm. um, on their app for yeah. some expert series. So stuff like that cool. is all super fun for me. So 
obviously your Instagram, then we've got antioppressivecare.com. Any other places folks can find you? Uh, yeah. So drhanren.com is where you can find mm. the majority of my stuff. Um, and if you're looking for clinical care in the state of Texas, Pivot Psychology ATX is um, my group practice website. Amazing. Well, Dr. Han, thanks so much for coming on. This was really cool. Uh, thank you so much for having me. What, what a wide-reaching um, conversation we had. It was really fun. Absolutely. Great. Thanks again.